Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In this episode, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. Can a computer program help primary care clinicians and their patients in the treatment of depression? A review of eight studies of computer-assisted cognitive behavior therapy found that computerized delivery of treatment is effective as long as a clinician offers a modest amount of support to users of the computer program. Attempts to have all of the treatment conducted by computer have been less successful. A typical treatment program using computer-assisted cognitive behavior therapy involves about 8 to 12 weeks of access to a computer program in addition to regularly scheduled brief support sessions with a clinician. Time spent with the clinician is usually less than 4 hours for the entire treatment, which is about one quarter of the time spent with a clinician in standard cognitive behavior therapy. And the support session can often be done remotely via telephone or email. Thus, this new method of depression therapy can be convenient for patients while allowing clinicians the opportunity to treat more patients than is possible with conventional therapy. Other advantages of computer-assisted cognitive behavior therapy are reduced cost of treatment, built-in methods for measuring progress, and the ability to guide patients in positive directions. The prevalence of dementia-related behavioral symptoms, also known as neuropsychiatric symptoms, may be as high as 60% in people with Alzheimer's disease and other dementias living in community settings, and more than 80% in people living in nursing homes. Dementia-related behavioral symptoms have been shown to increase caregiver burden and lead to earlier nursing home placement. Through personal narrative interviews, this study examined family caregiver perspectives on cooperative communication surrounding pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic resources for the treatment of dementia-related behavioral symptoms. The authors found that there is a significant gap in the coordination and communication between physician services and caregiver community resources to aid in the behavioral management of family members with dementia. Physicians tend to rely on pharmacologic management independent of community resources and do not seem to be integrated or involved with recommendations from community resources. The findings suggest that better integration of caregiver resources is necessary to help caregivers in the management of dementia-related behavioral symptoms. This study was funded by the University of California, Davis Center for Healthcare Policy and Research and Clinical and Translational Science Center, and partly supported by resources from the UC Davis Alzheimer's Disease Center, funded by the National Institute on Aging. Researchers confirmed that many individuals who died by suicide were in contact with a primary care physician within a month of their death. However, this research has done little to inform primary care physicians about how to prevent these deaths. The National Confidential Inquiry into Suicide and Homicide by People with Mental Illness was established in the United Kingdom to guide policy and clinical practice. The current study used a similar survey approach in southwestern Ontario, Canada. The authors described the social and clinical characteristics of individuals who died by suicide 
together with patterns of clinical and suicide risk assessment in primary care settings. A survey was conducted over three years, resulting in a total of 476 suicide cases. Survey data were extracted from coroner's files or completed by clinicians who had lost a patient to suicide. Among the cases, the most commonly diagnosed mental disorder was depression, followed by alcohol and substance abuse, bipolar affective disorder, and schizophrenia. Approximately half of those who died by suicide had a physical illness at the time of death, over 90% of which were chronic in nature. More than half of the individuals who died by overdosing used psychotropic or psychiatric medications, and of those, over 40% used multiple medications. These findings may be important when drafting recommendations to improve suicide risk assessment and management and suicide prevention overall in primary care. This research was funded by the Ontario Mental Health Foundation and the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care. Irritability in children is a common complaint and can be broadly classified as normal and developmental or abnormal which may be episodic or non-episodic. Due to increased incidence of bipolar disorder diagnosis in children and concerns about inappropriate treatment, there is a need to determine how practitioners assess irritability. Thus, the authors of this study looked at how primary care versus specialist practitioners assess and treat school-aged children with irritability. Providers from family medicine, pediatrics, and psychiatry participated in interviews about the process they used to evaluate irritability. Overall, family medicine and pediatric practitioners were significantly less confident in their ability to evaluate mental health status, while child and adolescent psychiatry participants were supportive of having more initial triage and possible treatment at the primary care level, suggesting a need for more training about childhood irritability in the primary care setting. This article is based on a study funded by the Qualitative Research Initiative Award and a small grant from the Penn State College of Medicine. Authors from this study in Japan looked at patient records covering a six-year span to find 12 patients with treatment-resistant bipolar disorder who had been treated with lamotrigine. In most cases, bipolar symptoms had resolved with the drug, but patients had to discontinue it because of unwanted side effects, like skin rash, even though manufacturer recommendations for dose titration had been followed. Since it was the only drug that seemed to resolve their bipolar symptoms, patients agreed to a rechallenge with lamotrigine, which was attempted using a lower and slower titration. In nine of the cases, a positive outcome of lamotrigine rechallenge was observed. In all cases with initial skin rash, with very slow titration of lamotrigine, the rechallenge was successful with no recurrence of the rash. In the three cases for which lamotrigine was unsuccessful, lamotrigine was discontinued owing to liver dysfunction, oral dyskinesia, or action tremor. The present results suggest that lamotrigine rechallenge may be a viable option for treatment-resistant bipolar disorder. However, clinicians should consider the ethnicity of the patients because there may be different reactions of lamotrigine in other populations. 
Chronic skin disease has a devastating effect on a person's physical and psychological well-being. Skin disease significantly impacts all aspects of a patient's life, including school, relationships, career choices, social and leisure activities, and sexual life. The physical, psychological, and social consequences affect not only the patients, but also caregivers and family members as well. Common psychological problems associated with skin disease include, but are not limited to, feelings of stress, anxiety, anger, depression, shame, social isolation, low self-esteem, and embarrassment. Besides psychopharmacology, multiple psychotherapeutic techniques have proved to be helpful in addressing the psychological sequelae of skin diseases. This issue's continuing medical education offering discusses the most common skin conditions that cause the highest levels of distress for patients and provides practical information with regard to management of the associated psychosocial symptoms. Go to primarycarecompanion.com to find out more. The galantamine-memetine combination is the standard of care for treatment of cognitive impairments in patients with Alzheimer's disease. Cognitive impairments due to electroconvulsive therapy, traumatic brain injury, and neurologic and psychiatric disorders are prevalent. Could the galantamine-memetine combination significantly improve functioning in these patients as well? In this narrative review, Dr. Kula sheds light on cognitive impairments due to electroconvulsive therapy, traumatic brain injury, and neurologic and psychiatric disorders, and the potential role of galantamine-memetine combination treatment with kynurenic acid and mismatch negativity as target engagement. He suggests that future positive studies may lead to standard of care, which may significantly improve socio-occupational functioning. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com to find numerous case reports on a variety of topics, such as dementia, approaches to preventing veteran suicides, and the impact of political rhetoric on mental health. You will also find the latest Psychotherapy Casebook article and can browse interactive activities from our CME Institute. We update our website weekly with new postings so there is always something new to explore. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings in our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast, Your Place for CNS Soundbites.